The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. For our study this morning, we're going to be looking at the subject of the cloud rider. That's something that's familiar to a lot of you. You have some idea of what we're talking about when we say that. You might want to ask, why is it important that we understand who the cloud rider is? Well, I think it's really important. It's very important for eschatology. But I've said over and over that we, we never will be able to understand the New Testament if we are not familiar with the Tanakh. If we jump out of the, you know, we go into the start at the last quarter of the Bible and start reading, we're missing so much and we don't know where the language and where it's coming from because all the imagery of the New Testament comes from the Tanakh. Matter of fact, everything taught in the New Testament comes from the Tanakh. The Bible was written in a time far distant from ours and in a culture that's kind of strange to us. So as we try to discover the author's meaning, we need to learn to read his writings as one of his contemporaries would. And that's not always not an easy thing to do, but... <clears throat> to do this, we need to understand the Tanakh as they did. Paul said in Acts 26:22, To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So notice carefully what Paul is saying here. He says, I'm not saying anything that, except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. So, so Paul is saying, everything I am preaching comes from the Hebrew Scriptures. So if you want to understand Paul, if you want to understand the New Testament writers, we need to have a handle on the Hebrew Scriptures. Because the language they use is come, all comes from that first three quarters of the Bible. They didn't just start with new words in the New Testament. You've got to have a Hebraic understanding. Now, if you're not familiar with the apocalyptic language of the Scriptures, you're not going to understand a lot of Christ's teachings. If you approach the New Testament's apocalyptic language without recognizing it for what it is, and you don't know how to deal with its tone, its images, and its symbols, I think you're going to go astray. The Scriptures give us a number of images of Yahweh. And one of those that we see over and over is the imagery of God riding on the clouds. Now, <laughs> you probably get various images in your head, okay, when you think of that. God riding the clouds, okay? we got a picture of a cloud, and... Somehow there's some man standing on it. It looks like he's trying to surf or something. Um, you know, and often when we think of clouds, we'll think of this, okay? This white, puffy cloud on a beautiful day. Well, let me try to alter that. When you think about Yahweh riding a cloud, what I want you to think of it as, as a storm cloud. A black cloud, a storm clouds, you know. And when you think of a black, stormy sky, it kind of scares you, you know? I mean, depending on... Maybe not us so much because we know it's coming, okay? But can you imagine back then, you know, there's not a newsman, no one's telling you anything, and all of a sudden it's a beautiful day, and all of a sudden it changes, and you're in the midst of this huge storm. And uh, it can be pretty scary. And clouds are often associated with strong storms, particularly thunderstorms and hurricanes. And we can perceive them as signs of God's power, all right? This mighty, you know, like I said, that sky just black and lightning, and it's just you know, thundering, and it's, you don't know what's going to happen next. So what I want us to do is look at some verses that call Yahweh the cloud rider and just get a handle on this, and then we'll move into the New Testament and see how it applies. 
Psalm 104 that Gary read earlier, 1 through 3 says, Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams in his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. All right, he says here that he makes the clouds his chariot. Here we see Yahweh as the cloud rider. And what's important to understand here is that this imagery used of God as a rider of the clouds is one among many examples throughout the Bible of the writer talking, taking an image used to describe other deities and attributing it to Yahweh as a way of showing His superiority. Now here's what's interesting. Many scholars see this psalm as polemical hymn against Aten, the Egyptian god. Or they see it against Baal, the Canaanite god. Yahweh riding on a cloud is symbolic of His sovereignty, His power. Now, some say that Psalm 104 is molded after an Egyptian hymn to the god Aten. And if you compare the two, there's a lot of similarities, alright? But given the Jewish familiarity with the Egyptian gods, it was written as an argument of sorts to show that Yahweh is sovereign over Aten. He's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Psalm 104 is about the glory of Yahweh. It's about His kingship, his creativity, his compassion for all the living, and they're on display throughout this hymn. And he describes the attributes of God as, and he says, one who rides on the clouds, one who walks on the wings of the wind. So he's just extolling the greatness of God. And if you, you go through this psalm, it kind of draws theologically very similar ideas to the creation story in Genesis 1 and the flood story of Genesis 6-9. through 9. Now the hymn to Aten shares with Psalm 104 several common themes such as the glorification of the Creator of the world, the praise of the beauty, wisdom, and splendor of His creation. Now, it's not only Aten that is called the God who rides the clouds, but we see this description of Baal, the Canaanite God, over and over. Now, I assume you're somewhat familiar with Ugarit, the place Ugarit. Well, we're going to tell you a little bit about it today, okay? So, write this down, all right? In literature, Israel's most significant Canaanite neighbor, just to the north, becomes a matter of interest when Baal is called repeatedly the rider of the clouds in his respective text. We see that all through the literature, you know, the Canaanite literature calling Baal the rider of the clouds. Uh, Michael Heiser helps, under, helps us, I think, understand some of this. He, talk, he says this, Israelite religion had an assembly of heavenly hosts under the authority of Yahweh. This assembly has very close affinities to the pantheons of the ancient Near East, particularly the Canaanite religion. The most telling example is the literature from Ras Shamra, Ugarit, discovered in the late 1920s. Now, here's the thing. Again, this is discovered in the 1920s. This helped us understand a whole lot when they discovered this, because the language is very similar to Hebrew, and so we, it just helped us understand the Bible a little bit better, just like the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls did. He says, as a Semitic language, Ugaritic is closely related to Biblical Hebrew, sharing a good deal of vocabulary as well as morphological and syntactical features upon their decipherment. Many of the Ugaritic tablets were found to contain words and phrases describing a council of gods that are conceptually and linguistically parallel to the Hebrew Bible. 
The Ugaritic divine council was led by El, the same word used in the Hebrew Bible for deity and as a proper name for the God of Israel. There are explicit references to a council or assembly of El, in some cases overlapping word for word those in the Hebrew Bible. So the ancient Canaanite city, state of Ugarit, is important for us studying the scripture because the literature of the city and the theology contained therein go a long way in helping us understand the meaning of various biblical passages as well as in deciphering some difficult Hebrew words. The Canaanite god Baal and the Hebrew god Yahweh are both known as storm deities. And that's kind of important. You know, we'll get into this in a minute here, but only one of these two deities claims supreme authority over the other and in the end stands alone as king of the universe. And that's Yahweh. And the, that's what the Hebrew writers are trying to show you. The people would be familiar with these other gods being called storm riders. So when he says Yahweh is the one who rides the storms, kind of spitting in the face of these other gods and say they're nothing. Okay, Yahweh's the cloud rider. Well, let's look at Psalm 68. Psalm 68, sing to God, sing praise to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is Yahweh. Exalt before him. Now, you read that and it doesn't make any sense. And I'm not really happy with the ESV translation there, but the <clears throat> Christian Standard Bible translates it this way. Him who rides on the clouds. Now, there's a big discrepancy there, okay, between riding on the clouds and riding through the desert. The first translation comes from uh, the words being translated as a reference to the Arabah, the desert south of the Dead Sea. And this is probably how the word should be translated as deserts in most contexts. However, in Psalm 68.4, we can see a clear parallel to the Ugaritic text, which describes Baal as the rider of the clouds. So the phrase used here, Rakov Arava, is likely a known title for Baal, which is being used by the psalmist as the Israelites would have seen Yahweh, not Baal, as the storm god, the one who brings rain to their crops. According to the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, it says clouds serve as God's war chariot in the imagination of the Old Testament poets and prophets. This image of the war god riding a chariot into battle is an ancient one, antedating the Bible in the Canaanite mythology where Baal is given the frequent epithet rider on the clouds. In fact, Baal was the god of the thunderstorm in the Ugaritic pantheon. His cloud riding was appropriate to his function. Now, so this idea of cloud rider occurs frequently in the Ugaritic text. For example, Anat, responding to an invitation from Baal in the tale of Akat, says this. It, this is Ugaritic literature. He says, What enemy has risen against Baal? What foe against the cloud rider? So he's calling Baal the cloud rider. He says, The youth speak up and answer, No enemy has risen against Baal. No foe against the cloud rider. Now, Baal was number two, the number two god in the Ugaritic pantheon, but, so he's high up there. But uh, <laughs> the picture of Yahweh riding on the clouds across the heavens, that's, it's a polemic, and it's directed against the Canaanite god. It was a statement, basically, of Yahweh's authority and sovereignty. Now, if you want to understand God's sovereignty over Baal, you go to Mount Carmel. And there was a showdown there at Mount Carmel. You remember it? Huh? In 1 Kings 18.1, it says, After many days, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah, 
in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab. I will send rain upon the earth. All right, they're in the midst of a serious drought right now. All right, the drought's been going on for years. Now, if you're in a drought, who are you praying to? Well, you want to pray to the God of rain, right? The fertility God. And that's, Baal was considered a fertility God. The fertility God sent rain, so these people are focusing on Baal, and we need Baal's help right now. And, you know, they just... The Israelites had a hard time staying faithful to Yahweh, that's for sure. text goes on, 1 Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow Him. If Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer a word. So he says, here's what we're going to do. Let's have a showdown, okay? You guys get yourself a bull. We'll get ourselves a bull. You put it on the altar. You cut it up. And then you pray to your God. Baal. And you tell Baal to come down and consume the fire, to consume the sacrifice by fire. We'll know that Baal's the God. Okay? So they, he says, you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh. He said, the God who answers by fire, that's God. Oh, this is no problem for Baal. Okay? He's a God of storms and thunders. He can handle this, alright? And all the people answered, it's well spoken. So the prophets of Baal come, they sacrifice the bull, and they start, marching. you said, you go first. And they're marching around and they're cutting themselves and they're gushing blood and they're screaming and yelling. And at noon, Elijah starts to torment them. Hey, yell louder. You might be sleeping. I, mean, I, do, I wouldn't say that to people who have knives and swords and are cutting themselves. If they're that crazy, I would be afraid to get them too mad. But he's not afraid. Okay, he's taunting them. He's te- he said, maybe he's in the bathroom. And they're they just constantly yelling at them. Well, they're all going on and on and on for hours and hours. Nothing happens. Then they say, okay, it's my turn. Elijah calls on Yahweh. Now, before he called on them, they set up an altar, put the sacrifice on it, dug a trench around it. Remember, they're in a famine. And filled the trench with water. You've got to be you know, freaking out saying, we don't have much water. You're putting it all in the ditch? What are you doing? And then Elijah prays, Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of Yahweh fell. It consumed the burnt offering. The wood, the stones, the dust was licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, Yahweh is God. Yahweh, He is is God. That's quite a display there. I mean, again, the water's, everything's gone, okay? And so then Elijah says, okay, take the 450 prophets of Baal and kill them. So they slaughter the prophets. Then he tells Ahab, okay, rain is coming. You know, get ready, because our God is in control, and he's the one who brings rain. All right, back to the cloud imagery. The cloud imagery is intended as an ancient one. If you go back further, you go all the way back, you know, you see God, when he called Israel, he was with them in the cloud. We see this in Exodus 13:21, And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. You know how many times these people griped against Moses and what was going on? But it, what they saw every day was this cloud over the tabernacle. When the cloud moved, they packed up and they followed it. When the cloud stopped, they set up the tabernacle. But yet, they're complaining against Moses. This cloud, this pillar of cloud, he said, to lead them along the way. And at night, it was a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. This would have been an awesome sight to see, people. But it didn't seem to have that big an effect on the Israelites, all right? 
During the Theophany on Sinai, when God comes to Sinai, the mountain's covered with a cloud. And it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp trembled. This is the, this is the black thunder clouds with lightning coming out of them and the people are afraid. A thick cloud on the mountain. And then when you look at the tabernacle, God appeared in the cloud that was showing that He was present in the Holy of Holies in Leviticus 16.2. And Yahweh said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So this is the whole idea. The cloud represents the presence of God. We'll see that, all right? That's his presence. That's the visible manifestation that they're seeing of him. And then this vehicular cloud we see also in the Torah and the Psalms and the prophets. Deuteronomy 33:26 says, There is none like God, O Jeshurim, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. Now, <clears throat> skies here is the Hebrew word shahok. Strong's defines this as powder, as beaten small, by analogy, a thin vapor. What's a thin vapor? Cloud? <laughs> okay, I don't know why they translate this as sky. This word is often translated as cloud because that's, you get that idea, this vapor. So, you know, different translations give us different ideas on things. Psalm 18, 9 and 10 says, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. So here we're told that darkness is under his feet. This is a reference to storm clouds. And we see this by looking at <clears throat> 2 Samuel 22, 10-12. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Exact same phrase. He rode the cherub. Same phrase that's in you know, Psalms 18. And he flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. So this darkness is a canopy. It's these thick clouds. And God is present in that. That's a manifestation of God. If we go to Nahum, we see Yahweh riding clouds again in Nahum 1.3. Yahweh is slow to anger, great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. Now, <clears throat> there's a couple more very important passages in the Tanakh deal with the, dealing with the cloud rider that tell us a whole lot about the cloud rider. We've dealt with, the passages we've dealt with are more minor ones compared to these two. Anybody know what they are? One of them I use a lot. Okay, class, you're not doing well. <laughs> Isaiah 19. You've got to be familiar with this, right? An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. Okay? He's riding on the cloud. He comes to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. I believe this also is polemic. In Ugaritic, Baal's epitaph again is this God who rides the clouds. So when the Hebrew comes along and they take that title and they apply it to Yahweh, they're in essence mocking and belittling Baal. They're saying, no, no, it's Yahweh, not Baal, who is the cloud rider. Now in this chapter... God is talking about the judgment that's about to fall on Egypt. The word oracle here 
is the Hebrew word Massah. And it means an utterance chiefly of doom. So this is God pronouncing judgment on Egypt. And by pronouncing the judgment, he says the Lord, Yahweh, is riding on a swift cloud and he's coming to Egypt. All right. Now, we know from chapter 20, the very next chapter, that God used the Assyrians as instruments of his wrath on Egypt. Go to chapter 20, verse 1. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. So Sargon, he's the king of Assyria. He's coming to Ashdod in Egypt, and he's fighting against it, and he's capturing it. But our text says that Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. Egypt will tremble at his presence. Okay, God's going to be present there. God came to Egypt in judgment. He's using Sargon. He's bringing the judgment. His presence is made known by the judgment. It's not like they looked up and saw a cloud. Here comes God on a cloud. And he's just shooting down lightning and destroying them. No. He was coming in judgment against them. And he's using Sargon and his armies to come in there. All right. The Assyrians were literally present. But the text says they're going to tremble at Yahweh's presence as he comes in on this cloud. Now, similar language is used in the fall of Nineveh. We go back to Nahum again in 1.3. It says, Yahweh is slow to anger, great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Okay, so we get this idea. He's coming in judgment. And then in verse 5 and 6, it says, The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him. This is all judgment. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So this is just a picture of tremendous judgment coming on. We know that Nineveh was destroyed, but not by a literal coming of God, you know, and some cloud floating down. It was by the invading armies of the Chaldeans and the Medes that happened in 612 B.C. Talking about the judgment. God's riding a cloud. He's bringing judgment. Okay, there's one more passage that's really important in the Tanakh dealing with this cloud rider. Very significant text. Anybody got a clue? No one? No one? Okay, here we go. Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now we know that the Ancient of Days is Yahweh, is the God of Israel. We know that because the description given of his throne In verses, if you go back in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, his throne is pictured as fiery with wheels, and it matches exactly the vision of Ezekiel chapter 1. And Ezekiel's vision also includes a human figure on the throat of God in Ezekiel 1, 26 and 27. So we know who the Ancient of Days is, okay? And he says here, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is talking about the, the Son of Man who is coming. Is an everlasting man which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel 7 is a crucial passage for the ancient doctrine of two powers in heaven. 
Now, you've heard me talk about that before. Ancient Judaism believed in two powers in heaven. They saw this in this text in Daniel. They saw it in several other texts. And then Judaism abandoned that view after Christianity came, after Christ came on the scene in Christianity because people, the Christians were using this as a polemic saying, hey, look, here's this, here's, this is Yeshua that it's talking about here. And so they didn't like that, so they just did away with the two powers doctrine and said, no, we're not going to talk about that anymore. If you want to get into really a really in-depth look at this idea of the two powers in heaven, Alan F. Siegel has a book out called Two Powers in Heaven. It's not light reading, it's not a casual read, but it's very loaded with information you know, from other religions in the area, from other cultures, and helps you understand this view of Yahweh, the cloud rider. Now, the ultimate son of David, the messianic king, is going to be both the son of man and deity. He's the cloud rider. That's how, that's how we know he's the son of man, he's deity. This is exactly what the New Testament teaches us. Now, anyone, let me say this as kindly as I can, anyone who denies the deity of Yeshua or the Trinity is not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures at all, okay? And I get those people all the time writing me, oh, I don't think Jesus is God. Okay, you're wrong, all right? I mean, it's all through the Hebrew Scriptures. Again, this text is declaring it. It's, it's declared all over the place. It, you just have to be familiar. Five times in the Tanakh, Yahweh is called the cloud rider. But in Daniel 7, there's an exception. There's a rider on the cloud is the Son of Man. It's a human. And dominion is given to the Son of Man, the second cloud rider. So here we see Yeshua, the Son of Man, coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving His everlasting kingdom. This prophecy was fulfilled in the Ascension. Now let's look at that in Acts 2. Being therefore a prophet, this is referring to David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Yeshua God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So God had sworn to an oath to David that he's going to raise up one of his descendants to sit on the throne. Okay, we know that's Christ. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David didn't ascend to heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Yeshua whom you crucified. Okay, so God has made this person. He's Lord in Christ. The kingdom received from the ancient of days is none other than the kingdom that Daniel talked about in chapter 2 with the stone that was cut without hands. The kingdom was given to Christ at his ascension. So the prophetic language of the Tanakh clearly shows us that Yahweh's coming on the clouds speaks about his coming in judgment. And that's exactly what it means when we come to the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, we see it portraying Christ coming on the clouds. All right, And that's why we've gone through all this so far, so you understand that when you get to the New Testament, Christ on the clouds, that's speaking of deity. So hopefully that makes sense. Now, we see that there's a second cloud rider in Daniel 7, and that cloud rider is Yeshua. So if we come to the New Testament with this understanding, I think it's going to help us understand 
the second coming of Christ, because this language is used a lot. Now, I think you'll agree with me, the majority opinion on the nature of the second coming of Christ is that it will be physical, visible, bodily return of the Lord. Okay? Now, let me tell you, the Bible does not say that. The creeds say that. The Bible doesn't say it. People say the Bible says it, and then they'll give you a verse, and you're like scratching your head. It doesn't say that. Okay, but they see it in there even though it doesn't say it. There's no question that that's the view held by the majority today. But it's not what the Bible teaches, okay? But they're looking for this vision. That's why they reject the coming of Christ in AD 70. Well, we're looking for a physical, bodily return of Christ. So what does the Bible teach that Yeshua will return to earth? Does he teach that in a physical, bodily manner? And if it does, where does it teach that? Where, where scripture would you go to to say Christ is going to come in a physical manner? Well, one they, they turn to a lot is Acts 1.11. Okay, and they say, see, this teaches a physical bodily coming. Well, let's look at it. And when he had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up, and a cloud, oh, there's a cloud, took him out of the sight. Now, you see cloud, hopefully you got a little idea what's going on. You're seeing a cloud, presence of God, okay, keep that cloud in mind. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee. Why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Yeshua, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, now see the people say, see that? He went physically. He's coming physically. That's the argument, okay? Well, let's examine the text. Now, there's a website called C-A-R-M, carm.org, and commenting on this text, they said this. This passage is not a symbolic vision. It is a literal They like that word. Historical narrative. Just as the disciples literally saw Jesus ascend bodily into heaven, the angels tell them that He will come in just the same way as you watched Him go into heaven. We see this hope of a literal, physical return of Jesus from heaven to earth repeated again and again in the apostles' preaching. No, we do not see it again and again. And we don't see it in Acts either. Okay, It says He's going to come in the same way. What does that mean? Exactly the same way? Every, every last detail? His ascension was physical and visible, so his return is going to be too. Is that what it's saying? Well, in the same way here is the Greek phrase hontropon. And by examining the usage of hontropon in the New Testament, it's clear that the phrase does not mean exactly in the same way in every detail. The idea of Hans tropon is similar in some fashion. For example, let's look how Luke uses it in Luke 13. Now remember, Luke wrote Acts, and he wrote Luke also, okay? So it's the same author here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent in. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? So did Yeshua want to gather Jerusalem in exactly the same way Hans Tropon as a hen gathers her chicks? I don't even know how a hen gathers her chicks. You do, Mike? You've seen it? Well, I just don't have chicks, so we wouldn't know. <laughs> okay, you don't have chicks. Well, you not got to that stage. All right. I don't, I don't know how this is, but I'm telling you, he's not in the same way, okay? He's not, he, first of all, he doesn't have wings, and he's not trying to get them under those wings, all right? Listen, the emphasis in Acts 1.11 is that Christ's coming would be on a cloud, all right? The cloud coming. That's the focus here. He left on a cloud... He's going to come in the clouds. Now, the most pervasive images of Christ's return as one who rides the cloud 
chariot into battle. We see that over and over talking about it, all right? There's no scripture, and prove me wrong here, okay? There's no scripture that explicitly teaches that Yeshua would return in a physical, bodily fashion. Again, the creeds do that, and so we take the creeds and we say, well, that must mean what the scripture teaches. I think an understanding of the language of the Tanakh will help us see that the second coming was not to be a physical, bodily coming. Now, I know that someone's bound to say, well, what about Revelation 1-7? Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, people ask, well, doesn't this indicate that his coming will be physical? I mean, every eye is going to see him, right? Well, this is not a physical bodily coming of Christ. It's a coming in judgment. Again, we see the cloud. He's coming in judgment, okay? The idea of seeing here is not the idea of seeing with the physical eye. It's the idea to understand, to recognize, to perceive. The destruction of Jerusalem would cause the tribes of Israel to recognize that Yeshua was indeed the Son of Man. He was their Messiah. Okay, get that in your mind. When they saw Jerusalem, they're saying, oh, this is obviously the coming of Christ. He is doing what He said He would do. Matthew says this about the destruction. In Matthew 24, 30, he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Same thing Revelation says. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So they see this coming. Again, the cloud coming is a judgment coming. Now, he says, then will appear in heaven. When is then? Well, this is immediately after the tribulation of those days, which is mentioned in verse 29. After the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, which was the great tribulation, this sign would be seen. So the question is, what's the sign? What are we looking for? What's the sign we got to see? And as you can imagine, there's all kinds of guesses as to what this sign would be. Okay? And here's the thing. Most people say this sign is yet future. So if something's future, guess what? You can make up anything you want. You can't disprove me because this hasn't happened yet, right? So you've got to wait however many years till it happens. Then you'll know I'm right, okay? Some of the church fathers, such as Chrysostom, Augustine, Jerome, Erasmus, they believe the sign would be a cross appearing in the heavens. So there's this cross. I don't know if it's just one, big one, so everyone can see it. It'd have to be pretty big. I mean, our perception only goes so far. Maybe it's a bunch of... But they just thought there'd be a sign of a cross in the sky. Now again, you know, these guys have some different ideas than most theologians today because they don't have the information that we have, all right? They don't have all the information we got from Ugart, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. We learned a lot. So we don't want to fault them. They did a good job with what they had. Some believe that this sign was the return of the star that marked the birth of Christ. So the star is going to be the sign. Some dispensationalists believe that the sign would involve the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, descending and remaining like a satellite city suspended over the earthly city of Jerusalem. So above Jerusalem, there's this satellite city floating in the sky. That would definitely be a sign. I don't know of what, but a sign of something. Hal Lindsey said this, Perhaps the sign of the Son of Man will be a gigantic celestial image of Yeshua flashed upon the heavens for all to see. Well, a lot of us don't know what he looked like. We never saw him. So I don't know how that's going to help us a lot, you know. He said, this would explain how all men suddenly recognize who he is and they see the scars from the piercing at the cross, all right? Now, as you can see here, if you ignore audience relevance, 
The sign can be whatever your imagination wants it to be. But who asked the question about the sign? It was the disciples in verse 3 of Matthew 24. Who was Yeshua talking to in verse 30 there? He's talking to his disciples. So whatever the sign would be, it would appear in AD 70 immediately after the tribulation of those days, as verse 29 says, which would be the destruction of Jerusalem. It was a sign that the generation, that generation, and not someone 2,000 years later, would understand. Now, to understand what the sign would be, we first need to have a correct translation. And a word-for-word rendering from the Greek reads this way. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. You see the difference there? Notice carefully that the location is heaven. It's not the sky. And it's not the sign that's in heaven. It's the Son of Man who's in heaven. Okay, big difference there. The point is this. The destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple was a sign that the Son of Man's in heaven. That's the sign. J. Marcellus Kick said this, A sign was not to appear in the heavens, but the destruction of Jerusalem was to indicate the rule of the Son of Man in heaven. That's the sign. That's what they needed to see. All right? Now, the wording of this passage refers us back to the expression Son of Man from Daniel 7.13. He said they're going to see the sign of the Son of Man, which Yeshua used concerning Himself, referring to His coming. The judgment of Jerusalem was a sign that the Son of Man was in heaven in fulfillment of Daniel 7.13 and 14. Now, the kingdom was given to Christ at His ascension, and this was made manifest to all Israel in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Jerusalem's destruction was the sign that Yeshua was the Christ, the Messiah of God. He said it would happen. It happened. That was the sign, not something floating in the sky. All right. Look at Matthew 26, 63 and 64. But Yeshua remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Yeshua said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's those clouds again. Now notice he says, you will see it. He's talking to Caiaphas. You're going to be the ones that's going to see this. You're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, Caiaphas, the high priest, he asked Yeshua if he's the Son of God and the Messiah. Now what I want you to do is see the similarities between Yeshua's answer to Caiaphas and what he said to his disciples, okay, in verse 30. He told Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. He told the disciples they would see the Son of Man, a sign that the Son of Man was in heaven. He told Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he told his disciples, you will see the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So it's obviously the same event in both passages. Now notice Caiaphas' response to Yeshua's statement. Then the high priest tore his robe and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What did Yeshua say that was blasphemous? He said, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. See, Caiaphas understood that Yeshua was claiming to be the Messiah. And in order to understand that what Yeshua was saying, we need to understand the idea behind the phrase coming on the clouds. And that's why we spent so much time looking at that, so we understand the cloud rider. When Yeshua said He's going to come on the clouds, He's using this apocalyptic language of the prophets to identify Himself as the Messiah, as the Judge. And Caiaphas reacted the way He did because He knew that 
Only God came on the clouds. And therefore, Yeshua was making a claim to deity. People say that Yeshua didn't do that, but he does it over and over. He knew that Yeshua was claiming to be the Messiah of Daniel 7. Notice what Yeshua says to Caiaphas in Mark 14. And Yeshua said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now here it says that they're going to see him coming with the clouds of heaven while he's seated at the right hand of power. If this is literal, if this is bodily, how can both be true at the same time? This is apocalyptic language. He's coming with the clouds. That is proof of his sitting at the right hand of power. John Lightfoot wrote this. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. Then shall the Son of Man give a proof of himself who they would not before acknowledge. A proof indeed, not in any visible figure, but in vengeance and judgment, so visible that all the tribes of the earth shall be forced to acknowledge him the avenger. The Jews would not know him. Now they shall know him, whether they will or no. He says, many times they asked him a sign. Now a sign shall, be, shall appear that he is the true Messiah, whom they despised, derided, and crucified. Namely, the signal vengeance and fury such as never any nation felt from the first foundation of the world. So Lightfoot says, look, this, this sign is about his coming, and now they know because this was the sign of the coming, it was the destruction. Thomas Newton, who wrote in 1754, said this, Our Savior proceedeth in the same figure style, verse 30, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He says, the plain meaning of this is that the destruction of Jerusalem will be such a remarkable instance of divine vengeance, such a signal manifestation of Christ's power and glory, that all the Jewish tribes shall mourn when they will be led from thence to acknowledge Christ and the Christian religion. In the ancient prophets, God is frequently described as coming in the clouds upon any remarkable interposition and manifestation of His power. And the same description here is applied to Christ. He says, the destruction of Jerusalem will be as ample a manifestation of Christ's power and glory as if he himself came visibly in the clouds of heaven. John Gill, who wrote in 1809, and he was a premillennialist, he said, he shall appear, not in person, but in power of his wrath and vengeance on the Jewish nation, which will be a full sign and proof of his being come. Now, the prophetic language of the Tanakh clearly shows us that the Lord's coming on a cloud speaks of a coming judgment. And that is exactly what it means in the New Testament when it portrays Christ coming in the clouds. People saw Him come in judgment. It was not a visible appearance of Christ in person. They didn't see a bodily figure. Yeshua predicted both the destruction of Jerusalem and His parousia in the same context. And this was evidence of who He was. Now, since Jerusalem was destroyed... Just as he said it would be, why would it be hard to believe that he came just as he said he would? See, the destruction of Jerusalem was a substantial manifestation of Christ's power and glory as he himself came visibly in the clouds of heaven. All right, They saw the, the destruction. They might not even see clouds at that time. I don't know if they did see clouds, but just the, ha- the fact that it happened was a judgment. 
All right, now the writers at that time talk about visible things in the sky, but it's very clear that Christ came in judgment. So the Bible doesn't emphasize a physical, bodily coming that has to be seen. Christ made it very clear that when Jerusalem was destroyed, that was the sign that he was who he said he was. Okay? So in Revelation 1 7, it's behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, Remember, John wrote Revelation. John starts the book of Revelation with two time statements, okay? Quickly, shortly. He ends it with five time statements. That's seven statements. So seven time statements, the number of perfection, bracket the whole book of Revelation. Everything in the middle is soon, quickly, shortly. All right, John, he stressed that. And then those who pierced him, he said they're going to wail at his coming. And the word here, tribes, that's a reference to Israel. Gentiles are not referred to as tribes in the Bible. Why are all the tribes wailing here? All the tribes of the earth are going to wail. Why are they wailing? Because their city is being destroyed. Their city, their temple, their people. All right, It's being destroyed. And so the tribes in Israel at that time, they're, they're crying out to God. You know, They're mourning over what they see. Since the destruction of Jerusalem, there have been no tribes in Israel. We've gone over this a lot with Israel, but Israel is done. Okay, in AD 70, that's the end of it. Other than the true Israel of God, which are believers. All right. Now, the cloud coming of Yeshua was a coming in judgment on Jerusalem. And, and the reason people have trouble with understanding that is because they're not familiar with the Tanakh. They're not familiar with the first three quarters of the Bible. They don't know who the cloud rider is. They don't know about Daniel 7. If you're not familiar with that, you're not going to get it. We don't, the New Testament is not a separate thing. Okay? And that's terrible when they just give out New Testaments, all right? Because you're like, oh, where's the rest of the book? You know? What's this language mean? What's this word mean? I don't know. It comes from the Hebrews. We need the whole book together, okay? I get the point of that. You know, they're trying, well, this is what we really need to understand. But I'm just saying, you really can't understand it unless you put the whole thing together, all right? His presence, when, when he came, and again, Isaiah 19.1 is... It's such a strong passage for this. You know, the Lord's presence was there in the judgment, but no one saw him, all right? Christ came. His presence was known by the Roman army that came and destroyed Jerusalem. He said this would happen. That's what Matthew 24 is all about. That's what the book of Revelation is all about, the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not future to us. It was past. The time statements are very important. We need to pay attention to that, okay? So Yeshua, he's the cloud rider along with Yahweh. When he comes on the clouds, he's coming to destroy, and he did that in AD 70, and there is no mention in Scripture, and there is no physical, bodily, literal coming of Christ in the future. Now, if you lived in Jerusalem, you would think the coming of Christ was pretty literal, okay, when the whole thing was destroyed. You would understand that in a literal sense, but Christ was not manifest in a literal sense. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the clarity of it when we spend enough time to, to dig it out and to seek for it, Lord. I just pray you'd give us an understanding of your text, Lord, that we would spend our time day in and day out digging into the text, seeking to learn and understand what you have for us. Thank you, Lord, for all the helps that we have today in this, in this day and age. Lord, there's really no excuse for not understanding things. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Yes, Mike. First of all, it's, it's a very, very helpful uh, message. Thank you. Uh, the, in Revelation, it, it seems like 
better translation usually of the word Greek word gay would be uh, land, land, land versus, but it seems like most English translations use the earth right and that seems very misleading yes you're right there's and that's the thing <laughs> the textual things you know everybody who translates text has a bias they have a belief and they want to make sure you know if they're honest they try to do that but you know we're just stuck you know this has to mean this and that's right, gay is translated earth or land, okay, it's the land. And the land they're talking about is, guess what? Israel. Land of Israel. <laughs> it's not the earth, it's not everywhere, you know. So understanding that, and when the King James translates Iona's world, that's just horrible, because it's the end of the world. And the Bible never speaks about the end of the world. It speaks about the end of the age over and over, and that's the age that ended. The Jewish age ended when the Lord returned in judgment on Jerusalem. We are in what the Bible calls the age to come. You got half a question since your hand's only halfway it's, up? It's, yeah. He's not sure. deals with Israel today, the nation of Israel. I understand they don't really, they're not really the people of God. But they don't, I'm just curious if you know, do they teach their kids the destruction of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem? Is that a mystery to them as well as it has been to us? You know. I mean, well, they teach a lot of things, but I don't know if they're—I uh, don't know if they're looking for their temple to be destroyed. They're looking for the Messiah to show up still. Yeah. And you know, they say some horrible things about Christ. You know, he's burning in hell in excrement. You know, and I mean, they—they they say some terrible things about Christians. If Christians knew what Jews believe, I think they have a really different view of Jews. Okay, they don't like Christians. They hate us. We're dogs. We should die. I mean, it's terrible stuff. It's just the same as the Quran almost and how they speak against Christians and believers. So, But most Christians are like, oh, they're the people of God. Not at all. Not for a long time. And God showed them they weren't his people when he shut it down. But everyone's looking for it to come back. This is John Mark from Northern California. Good morning, Pastor and fellow Bereans. Great message. Well informative. Very informative. Can we still say today that Yahweh is riding on clouds in judgment against nations? Or does the day of the Lord have to be prophecy attached to the older? I that's a good question. I would say God still does judge, okay? He still does. And does he bring judgment against nations? If a nation is judged, then God does it, okay? So I, I don't know that we understand it in that sense, but we see God destroying nations and using other nations to do it. And then we get mad at that other nation, and we don't know that God wanted them to do that. But you know, so that that's a good question. I think God still functions in the way of judgment like that, and national judgments. You know, He can raise up a nation, He can destroy a nation. Just not in the Bible. Yeah, it's just not talked about in the Bible because they finished writing it. I'm kind of glad you don't want to see your name in there, do you? Be at Philippi, and he says, "I beseech Odia, I beseech Syntyche, be of one mind. Mm -hmm. You ladies, stop fighting with each other." Mm -hmm. Those poor ladies in the crowd are like, what? He's talking to me. <laughs> forever enshrined. Yeah, forever enshrined. From Warren in California, another Californian. I see a hen gather her chicks years ago. She spread her wings real wide, and the chicks went under her, and, could, and you couldn't see the chicks. Oh, well, that's cool. So that's how, that's how the Lord wants to gather Jerusalem. He's going to spread his wings, and they're all going to run under there. 
you know, it can't be exactly in the same manner, okay? We have to understand Hontropon is similar. He's going to do it in a similar way. And I understand that Acts 1.11 could be difficult if you're not understanding that, all right? He's going to, you went visibly, physically, he's coming visibly, physically. You just got to fill in the details. Good morning, a little off topic. <laughs> are you familiar with the singing of the Psalms? Yeah, that's what the Psalms are. They're the songbook, okay? That's exactly what they are. It's a songbook in the middle of the Bible. A Bible in the middle of the Bible. We are a psaltery. We use a psaltery in our family worship. Singing God's Word is very edifying. Would you like me to send you a psaltery? Uh, I have the book of Psalms, but you're welcome to send something. Yeah, I wouldn't mind looking at that. That's, that's really familiar in the Reformed churches, isn't it? They use, yeah, yeah. Sing, I mean, I no music, no anything, just they sing the Psalms together. And, and again, that can be great. When you have, man, I used to go to the Bill Gothard seminar, which was horrible. But what's cool is you hear all these people singing, you know, together. It just sounds so amazing. I mean, these voices, you, nothing in the autumn, no music, anything, just these voices singing praises to God. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty wonderful. And that's, yeah, that's what they're about. That's how they did it. And, you know, that's a really good way to learn something. You know, I got, I got lyrics in my head from songs I haven't heard in 30 years. I can sing right along every word, you know. I think, and that's why we have to be careful of the songs we sing, because we pick up sometimes more theology through our songs than we do through the scripture. And that's one of the key purposes why they did, churches did that, because it was a way of memorization of scripture, especially for people who didn't have scripture, A, back in the days when you didn't have a Bible, and B, for people who couldn't read, right. now they could learn and memorize words from songs. So. Yeah, and it's interesting when you study the Israelites, you know, we're leery of oral stuff, you know, pa passing down things orally, in the same way they were leery of anything written down. They didn't trust it. Because they, they were an oral tradition. They passed things on. They had storytellers, and they would pass it on. It would get passed on and passed on. And they, it's just weird to, for us to think, because I'm like, you're something orally. You tell somebody else, the story gets changed a little bit all the way down. <laughs> so I don't know who this is. Someone said, uh, my favorite Christmas gift, it's a mug that says return on it, and it's got like a symbol of Christ there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. you get, you'll raise some eyebrows with that. Don't take it to church with you. <laughs> Andrew from Grand Rapids says, It seems to me that when Christ speaks to Caiaphas, he is from now on, he would see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. He means that as the gospel is going out, it is a sign of the kingdom being present, possessed from the ascension onward. Not that he would see at a time from the end, but from Daniel's prophecy being fulfilled, that Christ reigning from his ascension onward. And Caiaphas would bear witness to the end. Well, I guess that's a way to look at it. I don't see it that way. I see that you know he's talking to him about you're going to see you're going to see this manifestation because he's talking about coming on the clouds. The gospel being shared is never a reference to coming on clouds. Coming on clouds is judgment. Okay, however you look at it in there. Junior from Canada. He says, "Good stuff, Pastor Dave. Have you heard back from any of our ten families yet?" Uh, yes, Junior, I've heard back from several of them, and just, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's heartbreaking sometimes, it's tearful. Uh, one of the ladies we sent the money to was just, 
couldn't was beyond herself with you know thanks I just I can't imagine why would you do this and how could you give me this much money and she was just you know so blessed and so but I've heard from yes most of the families were <laughs> we sent money to a lady in California okay people that watch us from California Dana told her about this you know so she wrote me and told me the situation got six kids husbands out of work having a hard time you know so we sent her money she called me and said, I'm getting in my car, I'm gonna come see you. I want the boys to meet you and to say thank you. And I'm like, uh, do you know where we live? She says, well, Dana and Maggie go to your church, don't they? And I'm like, yeah, online. She goes, oh, what, you're an online church? She goes, so she's in California, she's gonna drive here. I'm like, no, I, I think you're gonna need more money if you're gonna do that. So yes, yes, Junior, I've heard from uh, a lot of the people. It's been, it's been very encouraging. I mean, you know, sometimes, I don't know, you think 500 bucks, what's that going to do? But to some people, it, it, it did a lot. It was a real blessing to them. I mean, I know that some over, overseas, some of these kids got shoes and just clothing that they, they didn't have, you know? Great sermon. Jimi Hendrix song, Riders of the Storm, is nothing more than a worship song to Baal and other false gods, huh? Jimi Hendrix. Didn't the Doors do that? It's the Doors. The doors. It's the Doors? Yeah. Yeah, he says Jimi Hendrix. I don't know. The Doors did that song. They're, they're, te they're telling me the Doors did that song. A worship song to Baal. That's interesting. You know, that, I mean, that could be connected, you know. Because like I said, a lot of the ancient literature, these writers, I mean, many gods are called you know, rider in the cloud. So that, that's interesting. I never thought of that. If only he could have used his talent to sing and play the worship of Yahweh. Yes, if so many people could. Gary and, Gary and Chris in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of half-truths out there. Make sure you don't get the half, the wrong half. <laughs> yeah, that's that's for sure. Make sure you don't. And that's our that's our struggle to try to figure out the right half. Uh, great message, David. The Lord's word has really been mistranslated. Yeah, it has, and I think we can know those parts if we're just, like I said, use different translations, do a little, you know, work into it. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff out there that tells you where there's textual discrepancies. You know, where different tech, and, and they're not that hard to figure out, and they're not that major things. But also, sometimes words are just, you know, they're just translated in the wrong way and gives us the whole wrong idea. Like I said, like I mentioned earlier, the whole idea of translating Iona's world, because the Bible talks over and over the end of the age, not the end of the world. Norm says, Amen, David, the complete scriptures are like a magnificent Sunday. <laughs> Three-fourths are filled with all the goodness, gooey goodness and syrup. The New Testament is the whipped cream and the cherry is the parousia. <laughs> the new covenant is here. It's just so good to live in the new covenant. This is the good news. It, it really is very good news. But the church keeps trying to take us back to the old covenant, put us under bondage, you know. Uh, I don't know who this is from. Someone says, I don't understand Christians who say that Yahweh is not done with, Yahweh is not done with Israel. What then did Yeshua mean when he cried out that it's finished? What do they think it what do they think is yet to be done? Well, I mean, if you're familiar with dispensationalism, you know they they expect that God's going to rebuild the temple. Everything's going to be reinstituted. Priesthood be all back. You know they got the, the red heifers getting ready. You know they need the red heifer for purification. So now they're breeding red heifers. I don't know where they're getting the genealogies from though, because you cannot be a priest without a genealogy. Okay, and so but they think it's all good. It all happened, but it's all going to happen again. They have this double fulfillment idea. 
which is so foolish because the Lord said, never again will there ever be anything like this. Daniel says that, you know, a terrible judgment. So not to, and the reason it's so terrible is not that there weren't greater judgments on people, but this was an old covenant judgment on the nation of Israel, God's people, and the end of the old covenant moves into the new. And that's the significance there. It's not just, you know, people got destroyed. Mm-hmm. People got done. It's done. And I just ask people, why? If the Jews, they can't follow the Bible because they're not sacrificing. They don't have a priesthood. They don't have a temple. They cannot follow the scriptures. Okay? And when they were out of the land, they moaned because they were away from the Lord. They knew to be out of the land was to be away from the Lord. They come back in the land, then they could carry on with their worship and sacrifices. They can't do that now. They're not doing that because they're done. It's funny that the most popular message we have on YouTube is that message on the nation of Israel is not God's people. Hmm. Almost 220,000 views. And it just and it's still getting a lot. It's slowing down a little, but it's still. Getting, and I think that people are so they don't understand that. So I went in. And that's the message. Where I went into the DNA and the whole thing about Israel. And there's no DNA evidence that those people they're Kazarians. They're not Jews, okay? And if we understand that, and we if we understand how bad these Kazarians hate us as non-Jews and what they want to do to us, they're the ones running the banks. They're the ones running the businesses. They're the ones running everything, okay? So. Yeah. You know why so many countries threw the Jews out, the Kassarian Jews out of the country? Uh, look, I think it's like 109 nations they were thrown out of. Why? You know all these jokes that you hear about Jews, you know, being tight, being this, being... Why do you, why do you think those things are? Usually it comes from some reality. All right, are we done? Wait a minute. Okay, good. This is a good one. I want to, I want to comment on it. It says, I've texted and have gotten no response. I'd like to support your ministry but need some direction. Please respond. My sister and I have been listening since November and are so excited about these truths which we have never heard ever since being born into Pentecostals. Okay, listen. Here, Let me try to explain this. This number was primarily to text me after the service to answer questions about what I just said. It's the point now. I'm getting texts all week long, morning, noon, and night. I just and people are asking me, you know, Bible. What is this? I can't answer everybody's Bible question. I have a life. I have other things going on. You know, someone wrote, "Why won't you respond to me?" And so I respond. You know, I try to answer the question. But please, please go to the website. The website will give you every answer you need. I tell people, go to the website, type in what you're looking for in the search engine. It'll bring up every time I mentioned it. Okay? Someone was asking me about Satan. I said, go to the website, type in Satan, boom. It'll bring up, or the, you know, if I, if I taught on it, it's on the website. If I didn't teach on it, I don't know what it means. Okay? Because I didn't, I mean, I have an idea, but it's just an ignorant idea because there's not based on anything, any real digging or response. So you really don't want to know what I think. Uh, so, so go to the website. So, um, I'm not. You said you'd like to support the ministry. Well, our our giving there's a, on the website. There's a section for giving, and you can either give through PayPal. You can give through Gab. Is Gab up and working? I don't know. It's We're still having problems with Gab. Gab's having problems. They're still working on that. Hmm. So PayPal is up there, and it, it got our ad- mailing address to send us a check. So there are ways to do it. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't respond to your text, but like I said, I get so many. And, and listen, it's really picked up since that message on National Israel. It's just like all of a sudden, and people write me, I watched your video, and I'm like, 
There's 800 of them on there. Which video? And I just have to assume it's, you know, that one because I don't know, you know, they're asking me questions about it, you know, and I'm like, so please, I just, you know, I get more emails, I get more texts than I can possibly respond to. If I'm going to study the Bible, and that's, I guard my time very, very strictly so I can have time to study. I really do guard that. People get upset because, well, I need this, I, I, this is my focus. If I have extra time, I, I like to help people, I like to answer questions, and I try to get facts someday. But sometimes the, the emails just get buried because they just keep coming in and I can't, you know, if I'm really have a lot of time, sometimes I go back and try to, you know, sorry you wrote me a month ago. But so that's that's a problem. I apologize for not getting back to you, but I just, again. Oh, you don't have a secretary. Yeah, I don't have a secretary. <laughs> uh -oh. My wife won't let me get a secretary. Sounds like she's volunteering, right? <laughs>